Right. So, having taken a long break, then what uh, seems to make sense would be to have a review. And in our review, what uh, we'll cover are the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, and uh, Chittamatra uh, assertions about uh, the person and the refutation of uh, the uh, impossible way that a person can be established or that a person exists. Because this is the uh, foundation for understanding voidness. It always says in the uh, text that uh, first we need to understand the voidness of uh, the self, of a person, and uh, having understood that, because that's uh, easier to understand, then we can go on to understand the voidness of all phenomena. Once we have uh, become familiar with uh, both of those, then uh, in terms of uh, actual meditation after that, the order is reversed. We understand the voidness of uh, phenomenon and then include within that the self. But uh, what is uh, very important is always to include the self and to not forget when we are meditating on the voidness of all phenomenon to uh, emphasize the voidness of the self. Otherwise, we uh, get into this uh, uh, wrong view that everything out there doesn't have a truly established existence, but I do, because we haven't really uh, refuted the false self. So that uh, refutation of the false self of a person, ourselves, and uh, all others is uh, very much uh, crucial. <clears throat> so we start with the Vaibhashikas. And the uh, Vaibhashikas already give us the uh, presentation of what is a person. A person is a non-congruent affecting variable. That's the way that we've usually been uh, translating it. It is an imputation. It is something that is uh, in other systems not uh, congruent with uh, the uh, Consciousness and the mental factors that it uh, accompanies, non-congruent, means that it doesn't share five things in common with them. In uh, the Vaibhashika system, those five things are uh, uh, the sensor, so the reliance, what it relies on, and the focal object, what it is aimed at, the mental aspect, the hologram that uh, it uh, gives rise to, the time, in other words, simultaneous, and the natal source, which uh, here means that uh, it has a harmonious slant with uh, the consciousness and mental factors that it accompanies. But in the Vaibhashika system, uh, that's not really the way that it is uh, defined, because the Vaibhashika system doesn't accept mental holograms, so it can't have five things in common. So what it... Uh, can be defined as, in a more general way, is a non-static phenomenon, so a functional phenomenon, uh, changes from moment to moment, that is neither a form of physical phenomenon nor a way of being aware of something. So it is 
not in either of those uh, categories. So it's not like the body, it's not like consciousness, it's not like uh, the emotions, but nevertheless it uh, changes from moment to moment. So that's the uh, type of uh, phenomenon that it is. And it's an imputation, which means that uh, it is uh, um, exists in terms of uh, relation with the basis. Anyway, we'll get to that. So what are the characteristics of the uh, of a self, of a person? First of all, according to the Vaibhashikas, it has substantially established existence. That means that it's a substantial entity. It has a substantial nature. And the way that that is defined is that it uh, is able to perform a function. Because it uh, performs a function, it's a substantial thing. And uh, in the Vaibhashika system, not only do um, non-static, in other words, impermanent phenomenon, conditioned phenomenon, however we want to understand them, not only do they perform a function, but also static phenomenon in their system also performs the function, in this case, the function of being an object of cognition. So they say that everything has a substantially established existence because everything performs a function. And clearly, a person, ourselves, we do things. Uh, so we perform functions. It is a superficial true phenomenon in the Vaibhashika system, the way that uh, they define superficial and deepest true phenomenon is uh, in terms of uh, whether or not we can uh, continue to cognize the conventional identity of something while we are dissecting it by physical means or analyzing it by mental scrutiny. So a uh, conventionally true object or superficially true object is one that uh, when we chop it up either physically or uh, if it is a mental factor, we chop it up uh, uh, mentally over time and so on, does it still retain its identity? So for instance, a table, when you break it into its parts, no longer retains its identity. It's no longer a table. So that's a superficial phenomenon. Whereas uh, the uh, elements, uh, no matter how small, uh, a piece that you cut of an element of uh, uh, earth, water, fire, wind, it still retains its identity. So that's the deepest true phenomenon. Or uh, love, no matter how small or how tiny a moment of uh, love that there is, it's still love. Whereas other things which are uh, more complex, like uh, a mood or something like that, you break it up and has all these parts, it no longer retains its identity. So, given that definition, what is the, a person, what is a self? Is it a superficial true phenomenon or a deepest true phenomenon? Superficial. It's superficial. You break it up into the parts, body or mind or an emotion, it no longer retains its identity. So it's a superficial true phenomenon. 
But uh, as we said, it's an imputation. It's an imputation on a basis for imputation of five aggregates. So its existence arises uh, dependently on its basis. And it can't exist independently of its basis. So this uh, something that we really need to understand in terms of uh, what is an imputation. Imputation here is what uh, later on will be called in the Sautrantika system an objective uh, entity. It can be seen, it can be heard non-conceptually. We can see a person, we can uh, hear a person when they're talking, and so on. So it's not something that is only known conceptually. It can be known non-conceptually, but it can't exist independently of an object. So what's another example of a, uh, an imputation, a, uh, this so-called non-congruent affecting variable, something that's neither a form of physical phenomenon nor a way of being aware of something. And in the Vibhashika system, they have a specific list of them. Uh, it is uh, expanded later in uh, the higher uh, tenet systems. It's hard to know whether or not uh, the things that the later systems uh, specify could also be included in their list. But for the purposes of uh, explanation, it's easier to, uh, I mean, it's safer to explain it in terms of an example of something else in their list. So one of the things in their list is aging. Aging is neither a form of physical phenomenon nor a way of uh, being aware of something. Can it exist? Well, first of all, what is, an what is aging an imputation on? What's its basis for imputation? The body was just a body. Over time. Yeah, a body over time. Okay, so can aging exist separately, independently of an object like a, a body over time? No. Okay, so this is what, uh, but you can see that somebody is aged, can't you? Or you can see that a, a fruit, you know, a rotten fruit has aged. So it's something that you can see. It can be known non-conceptually. Now, in the Vaibhashika system, it's quite unique in that it says that it is self-sufficiently knowable. All the other systems will say that it's imputedly knowable, that it can only be known uh, together with its basis. But uh, in Vaibhashika, uh, we don't have that yet. So they say that it's self-sufficiently knowable. Uh, that's because, unlike Sautrantika and Chittamatra, which assert that the imputation and the basis of imputation share the same substantial nature, they say they have separate substantial natures. So what does that mean? Uh, in the Sautrantika system, they say that uh, there's a common locus, a common denominator of a person and mental consciousness. That's where the defining characteristic of a person can always be found. So they share the same substantial uh, nature or entity. In Chittamatra, they would say that uh, the self and uh, 
the Ilya Vinyana, the foundation consciousness, share the same uh, defining characteristic. I mean, it's not that they share the same defining characteristic, they're the common locus. Just the, in other words, the defining characteristic of both located in the same place. It's an example of something that has the defining characteristics of both, and they share the same substantial nature. So, Vaibhashka says, no, that's not the case, that uh, they have separate substantial uh, natures, they're separate entities in a sense. Who? The Vaibhashikas. A common locus is a common place, a common thing, a common denominator that is uh, an example of both. But who has the... The the Sautrantikas and Chittamatras say yeah, that in Vaibhashika? Vaibhashika, there's no there is no common denominator of what of the person of an imputation and the basis for imputation in terms of uh, well just in general ah yeah an imputation and the basis of imputation right okay so this so for instance um. What is the basis of uh, aging when we're speaking about the body? You said that it is the body over a period of time. So that is the basis. In one moment, do you see the body over a period of time? No. So in that moment, do you see the entire basis of imputation of aging? No. Nevertheless, you can see that somebody has aged. So it's the same thing as seeing a piece of uh, rotten fruit. The basis for saying that it is aged, that it has gone rotten, is the, you know, from the fruit when it uh, first developed all the way till uh, it completely disintegrates, but we only see one moment. So it's on that, the basis of that line of reasoning that the Vaibhashikas say that uh, you don't need to see the basis of imputation in order to see what's imputed on it. So it's the same thing when we see a person, the basis for uh, imputation of a person according to the Vaibhashikas, is the collection of the five aggregates. It's all of them. Nevertheless, in one moment, we don't see all of them. We can't perceive all of them. We see a body, but we don't perceive the mind or the emotions or the feelings or like that. So it's the same argument in terms of uh, what we explained with a piece of rotten fruit. So like that, you can see somebody and see, oh, you know, you've gotten old, you've aged, without having to perceive at the same time them from the time they were a baby. But in the case of the fruit, we had to first learn consciously what a fruit that hasn't aged, a newborn fruit, a new fresh fruit has a first look. Well, that's previously. 
That's true. You would need to have known previously that the explanation what I, that the person was a baby. Um, well, just in general, you would need to know that, not that specific piece of fruit. You can see an old person and recognize that they're old, that they're aged. You don't have to have seen them before. No, but knowing in general. But know in that general. What? That general knowledge. Right before they aged. Right, that general knowledge would be there. But they're talking about in an actual moment of perception, can you perceive a person without perceiving the whole basis for imputation of a person? This is what they're saying. So, based on that, they say that uh, you don't need that the uh, person is self-sufficiently knowable. It's only when we get to the Sautrantikas that that's refuted, that that becomes the subtle uh, selflessness or identitylessness of a person. And the Vaibhashka system, we only have the gross uh, lack of a, of a, of a uh, true identity or selflessness of a uh, person, which is okay, because that's uh, what we need to start with. So we can start there, and then we start to get more sophisticated as we go on with the systems. And this also, this idea that we can uh, perceive uh, self-sufficiently, in other words, without, you don't have to rely on anything else appearing, a person fits in with the Vaibhashka uh, cognition theory. The Vaibhashka cognition theory is that uh, you perceive things by their having direct contact with the consciousness through the uh, sensor, the cognitive sensor, the photosensitive cells of the eyes, or the sound sensitive of the ear, and so on. That uh, you don't have mental holograms, which is uh, introduced in the Sautrantika system, but uh, it is what we can call direct cognition. So because it's direct cognition, even though when you perceive uh, a person, that person doesn't exist independently of a basis, but the only thing that you could perceive, because it's smack against the uh, consciousness, would be the person. Maybe the body is what you're perceiving, you know, uh, behind it but directly you just perceive the person and they don't accept implicit apprehension, you know, that there's something that you know that doesn't appear. They don't accept that either. That also comes in with the Sautrantikas. So, we have uh, this uh, Vaibhashika assertion of a, uh, of a self, of a person. And when we refute it, we say that there's no such thing as that. Uh, that's not the type of refutation that we have in Vaibhashika. No such thing as, that's what's called a non-implicative uh, negation phenomenon. Here you don't have that. In all the other systems you have that. Here it is an implicative negation phenomenon, which means that uh, what you're focusing on is, it is not this. So, in terms of the 
conventional self, what you would uh, be, uh, um, what you need to understand is that it is not static, it is not partless, it is not something that can exist independently of the aggregates of a body and mind. That's what you would uh, focus on, and an implicative uh, negation phenomenon leaves in its wake, it says. Is, uh, like the wake is what a uh, uh, motorboat leaves behind it in the water. So it leaves behind it, it implies something. It's not this, it implies it's that. So when we uh, focus on it's not static, partless, and uh, independently existing, what does it leave in its wake? What does it imply? Changing. Right. It is non-static. Mm. Go on. Mm. One way or the other things are non-static. Anyone? It has parts. And? Anyone? Come on. Interconnected. Pardon? And it is dependent. It, does, it can't exist, it doesn't exist independently. So when we say that it is not static, it is not partless, it is not independent, then it excludes that. So what it implies is the opposite of that, that it is non-static, um, has parts, and is dependent. It's actually what the Heart Sutra does, isn't it? Pardon? It's actually what the Heart Sutra does. Is that what the Heart Sutra says? There's no I. If you say that it's. But I find it has the same effect. It has this. You read it, when you read it, um, it has this. For me, it has this effect of it's not there in the text, but it implies that it's, a, it's not the I. It's interconnected or dependent on something, you know? It's not explicitly written there, but it's. Well, no. The, in the Heart Sutra, when it says there's no I, no ear, no nose, uh, Etc. That's not a, an implicative in, uh, negation. It's a non-implicative. There's no such thing as an uh, independently existing I, a, a self-established I. There's no such thing as a self-established ear, and so on. I mean, it can be understood in many ways. When you focus on voidness, there is no appearance of an I, ear, nose, etc., that's one way of understanding it. There just absolutely isn't because they don't appear in uh, voidness. But then also there is nothing that corresponds to the mental label of eye, ear, and nose, which would be a truly established eye, ear, and nose. So there's no such thing as that. So this is in the Heart Sutra. This is not the same. Also, when you say... You know, there's a difference between this is not uh, an I. Let's not get confused with I and I in English. This is not a nose. And this is not static. What's the difference? What's the difference? 
between this is not a nose and this is not static. Pardon? No, I mean, these are two different implicative negations. What is the difference between the two? How many choices, how many possibilities are there when you say this is not a nose of what else it could be? Millions. Many. But when you say this is not static, how many possibilities are? Only one. Okay, so... This is not a nose. It could be this is a piece of paper, this is an ear, this is a mouth, this is a uh, you know, table. There are many, many things that it could imply. It's not specific. There's only one other possibility, so it specifies it quite well. Technically. Hmm? What would but the other argue, possibilities be? Well, you could say both static and non-static. But everything in between. And, pardon? Everything in between. Everything in between? Yeah, what, how, what would everything in between be? By the way, can you turn on the light? Semi-static. Things are static sometimes and non-static. Okay, so that is the... When you have four possibilities... Static, non-static, both, or neither. So then you have to come up with examples of uh, what would both be. Remember, static and non-static means it changes or it doesn't change. Sometimes it. In one moment. It could. I. One moment. Nothing can change. What is one moment? No. Uh, That's true. In one moment, you can't have something yeah. both changing and not changing. It requires same, two moments. Time. At the same time. Same. But over time, you can't have something that's similar, simultaneously changing yes. and non-changing. Right. So you. So you can't. No. So you can say that something in its nature doesn't change, but its manifestation changes, you know, and that also would be refuted because uh, each one of those could be refuted. I mean, this we get in the, uh, remember, in uh, Tsongkhapa's Lamrim Chemo, when we were talking about the difference between either or and neither nor. Tsongkhapa made that point, that if you say it's either this or that, there's no other possibility. If you say it's neither this nor that, it could be something else. Mm -hmm. So those are logical categories, right? Mm -hmm. So what have we covered? What can you remember? What kind of phenomenon is the self, is a person? Imputed phenomenon. Pardon? Imputed phenomenon. An imputed phenomenon. 
Is it a form of physical phenomenon? No. A way of being aware of something? No. No. So it's non-congruent. Right, non-congruent. So it is a not. Does it change from moment to moment? Yes, so it's a changing phenomenon that's neither a way of being aware of something or a form of physical phenomenon. And you said it's an imputation. So, can it exist separately from a basis of imputation? No. No. And uh, is it superficially true or deeply true, ultimately true? Superficial. Why? Because when you cut it into its parts, it no longer retains its identity. Right? Uh, can you see a person, or is it only something conceptual? You can see a person. Uh, is it, uh, can it be known all by itself, without its basis of imputation also being known at the same time? According to Sautrantika, it can Okay, so, pardon, to uh, Vaibhashka, I'm sorry, it can. Again, the last point, could you, re you repeat the last point? It, it is self-sufficiently knowable, you can know it without its entire basis of imputation it's appearing. Its entire basis, okay. Well, when so they I say with its basis for imputation, it means the entire basis. Mm. That's why, yeah, of course, it's the same what what others would say, you know, you can... You, I mean, also Prasantika would say you can, you can know somebody without knowing the whole base of it. That's right. But here they say because the basis is the collection uh -huh. of the whole thing, collection implies that all of them have to be present. None of the others define it that way, the basis. Okay, so it's just a matter because of their defined definition. It's their system and their definition. Everything in their, in their system fits together with each other. It's a system. Well, it becomes, this is your initial understanding. This is easier to work with. Then you refine it. The whole methodology is that first you get a rough understanding, and then you say, well, it's not quite like that. And you narrow in a little bit more, refute some parts of it, then refute some more parts of it, some more parts of it, some more parts of it. That's how you actually gain a, uh, an accurate Understanding. Otherwise, as Tsongkhapa points out, you under-refute because you haven't refuted enough. Because you haven't actually seen all the things that have to be refuted. Okay. So, a person lacks a soul, you know, a self, that is static, partless, and can exist independently of the aggregates. And which temporarily inhabits, makes use of, and possesses a set of aggregates that goes along with if you think that it is an independently existing thing. Remember, this comes in the non-Buddhist systems. This is what they are refuting. This is doctrinally um, known. You would have to be taught this. Dog wouldn't think this. That uh, the self and Atman doesn't change, never changes, not affected by anything, 
doesn't have parts. It's either the size of you know the universe or it's a tiny you know uh, spark. And in liberation, in moksha, it can exist independently of a body and mind. That's the view, and you'd have to be taught that. We could have incorrect consideration of each of these parts, but what we're refuting here is the whole package. Okay. Now, it is not static. Why? According to the definition of a person, why is it not static? Because it changes from moment to moment and performs functions, even though they say static things perform functions, but in performing a function, it changes, it ages, for example. It's not partless. Why? Well, because when you divide it into parts, it loses its conventional identity. Therefore, it has parts, because you can divide it into parts. Right? And it can't exist independently of the aggregates, although it can be known without all of them being known simultaneously with it. Why? Because it can't stand in its own place when analyzed. If it could exist independently, then when you analyze it, it should still exist there. So, because it uh, can't stand in its own place, is the literal term that's used when analyzed. And remember, if it inhabited, you know, this Atman comes into a body and mind, this me, and now that's its uh, house, it occupies it, inhabits it, it operates it, it operates the mind and the body, you know, now I'm going to do this, you know, now let me think about what I'm going to do. What do people think of me? Well, I'd better do this or that. So it's inside, it's operating it, and it possesses it, my body, my mind, my intellect, my precious, you know, whatever. So if it could inhabit it like that and do that, it should be able to exist separately. It would be a separate entity. So these are the reasons that are given for understanding that it's not like this. So now, what do we do with this? What we do with this is, uh, first of all, in order to have compassion, well, I shouldn't start that way, uh, we have to refute it. And in refuting it, what uh, I'd like to introduce here, which we didn't do earlier, are uh, bringing in compassion in terms of this. In uh, Chandrakirti's uh, explanation of uh, compassion at the beginning of uh, Madhyamaka Avatara, engaging in uh, the middle way, he points out that there is compassion based on uh, compassion which is aimed at suffering, compassion which is aimed at uh, phenomenon, which means at impermanence, and compassion which is aimed at uh, unnamed, what is unnamed, aimed at being unnamed, which means at uh, uh, voidness. And what that means is that you have compassion for those who suffer because they don't recognize suffering, 
You have compassion for those who suffer because they don't understand impermanence. And you have compassion for those who suffer because they don't understand voidness. So these are three types of uh, compassion that we would have. And if we want to have compassion, that has to be based on, uh, for others, we have to have renunciation of that suffering in ourselves, which is basically compassion based at ourselves. And in order to have that, we need to uh, be convinced that it's possible to get rid of it. So this is what I would like to bring together in our uh, review of uh, this refutation of, uh, of the self. So we start with Vibhashika. If, well, first of all, ignorance is not knowing in the system. We just don't know that uh, the self is non-static, has parts, and... Uh, can't exist independently of his basis for imputation. We don't know that. And so we consider that it uh, is like that. So if we have the understanding of this implicative implication that it's not like that, and if we, if in that Implicative negation, there are only two possibilities. It's either static or not static. It either has parts or it doesn't have parts. It either can exist independently or it can't exist independently. Then if we understand that it's not one of these two possibilities, it would negate the other one we can get rid of our belief in the other possibility. Right? So you have to be convinced that that, that makes logical sense. So think about that. If the only possibilities are X or not X, and you negate X, what are you left with? Not, not X. Not X. So the more that we focus on negating X, left with non-X, the more we focus on negating static, we understand we're left with not static. So is there, so then you have to understand, okay, so the refutation would work. So what suffering do we get based on this misconception, this misbelief? 
That's what we really need to understand because we have suffering based on thinking of ourselves as being static. I can never change. I'm not affected by anything. So this you have to recognize. What suffering comes from that? No, the suffering of thinking that we don't change, that I'm that you're stuck wherever you are. Yeah, but for me it means that we are suffering under the feeling that we change all the time. Nothing is static. We are not static. Well, that's insecurity. That's a different type of. That's the suffering of change. We're not talking about the suffering of change, which is that you're never satisfied. There's no security. Blah blah blah. We're talking about. What suffering try to recognize when you think that I'm never going to change? What's an example? It's like hanging on your old weight you had at the age of 25 or something. Right. Stubborn, uh, you know, my body, I'm never going to grow old. Um, my habits are, you know, will never change. Right, so we feel that we feel that the situation that we're in that is permanent. We're not talking about situations, or we're talking about me. That I will never change. That I'm not affected by what happens. Doesn't matter what happens, you know. It's me. Think about it. Do you ever think of yourself as being static? That I'm not going to change. Yes. That the situation, I'm always going to be able to do my work. I'm always going to be able to, you know. I'll always be sick. I'll always be sick. It feels like it, right. It but feels like it. We all get older, we all know that, but we don't take it into account on an everyday basis. So it feels like... Well, we know that we get older, but we don't want to accept that. So that means that we, in fact, think that we are ecstatic. We kind of don't act on it. Right. So then... That's what some sorrow is connected to. Pardon? Samsara is connected to, well, samsara is the suffering that we get from that. So then you have to recognize the disturbing emotions that arise based on thinking that we're static. These are the doctrinally based disturbing emotions. The first recognition have to be the suffering itself? Well, we're not talking about where we are... In a static situation. Right, well, that... 
realize that there right. Well, this is the, the, the gets to the compassion of not knowing impermanence. I mean, we're not, I just, the three types of compassion that Chandrakirti has in terms of not knowing suffering, not knowing impermanence, not knowing uh, voidness, just suggests applying it here, of the suffering of not knowing that uh, we're not static, not knowing that we have parts, not knowing that uh, we uh, don't exist independently. So, when we think I'm forever young, I'm forever going to be able to do things, nothing's going to change, what sort of disturbing emotions to come from that? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Pride. Pride. Arrogance. Arrogance. Anger when you can't do something that you think you should be able to do. Jealousy. Jealousy. Attachment. Being able to always do, you know, eat the same kind of food that you could always eat. Despair. Pardon? Despair. Despair. Well, no, despair would come from, well, despair if you think that I'm always going to be sick, I'm always going to be, you know, not good enough. Right, so that is, we apply it not just for ourselves. First we were starting with ourselves, then we would apply it for others. No, then comes guilt. Guilt and all those sort of things. There is, so these are the doctrinally based disturbing emotions. Yeah, basically all negative emotion, if it comes to getting stuck in stability of negativity. If you're stuck somewhere and you think it's a life, then you feel frustration. I don't know. Because the stability can be like believing in something positive, then you have pride, right? Right, you can yeah. think I'm static in terms yeah. of positive things, yeah. you have pride, uh, in terms of negative things, and you yeah. could have guilt. And all this right. Thing. Well, there's like two branches that I see here. There's one like from, from that thought. There's one that is more arrogant, and there's one that's a little bit more of a downer like the arrogant one is like what you're saying is like when you don't think that you'll ever get older or your right. body won't change and then kind of like what i was saying what she was saying was kind of more negative like if you have an addiction and you think you, you can't get older, right exactly like exactly yeah. exactly there are two different, different directions yeah. that it can go yeah. well remember the disturbing action the disturbing emotions are you know quite wide and the ones that they have and then there is also the um, doctrinally based would be objects. The, the objects are <laughs> lack a um, selflessness of a person. And what that means is that uh, uh, the object is not something which is possessed by the static me. By a static me. So what could that mean? That um, this is my house. I'm never going to change, so it's always going to be my house. (laughs) 
this is my job. I'm never going to change having this job. I'm never going to change having this um, whatever. So that is the selflessness of a person in terms of objects, in terms of a phenomenon. So that's there as well. Then also you have the... Um, it's not a static self that is experiencing suffering. It's not a static self that is experiencing the cause of suffering, that experiences the uh, cessation of suffering, and that would have uh, the understanding that would get rid of suffering. So you also understand this in terms of the Four Noble Truths. It's a static me who's always suffering, and that's never going to change, and it's because I'm stupid, and that's never going to change, but I can become, you know, um, free of that, and then I'll never change, and I'm so smart because I have the understanding, and that'll never change. That me. So you apply it to all these things. But could you, couldn't you see even this um, expectation that another, or that affects the disappointment if you um, expecting to be static and you will? Well, if you expect that you will be static, the thing is that we, uh, because we don't, we can't observe moment-to-moment changes, then we think that uh, we are not changing, we think we're not growing old. So then you don't expect that you're going to grow old. I mean, it's like death. You know, everybody else is dying, not me. That's not going to happen to me. Not today. Not today. And it's interesting as you get, as, you know, some of your friends and relatives die. Do you, whether suddenly or with a disease, still, we don't believe that we're going to die. We're static. And then poor me. You know, I'm the one that's suffering. I always am sick. So, that's the first thing. So then we can have compassion for ourselves. May we be free of that, and then compassion for others who have this. So, try that for a minute. And whatever, whatever it is that is our own personal example of thinking that we are static, that we don't change, and that we're not going to change.
and the suffering that we have from that and the disturbing emotions that we have from that. And then may we be free of it. And we can become free of it because we understand that it can be removed. And you can even do it with Donglen, taking in that suffering and then giving the understanding. Okay, I thought of an example for your changing but not changing which is that uh, I'm always healthy, that's never going to change, but sometimes I get sick. Mm-hmm. But basically I'm always healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm generally healthy, yeah, but sometimes Yeah. But I guess the, the, the question was if there's something that's both. That's both, both yeah, but both are not simultaneous. It's only a make-believe. It's only a make-believe in a sense, sure. Oh yeah, that uh, we are. That's right. The uh, idea 
that uh, we are that the self goes through time and doesn't change would be like a suitcase moving along a conveyor belt. The conveyor belt being life and going through the phases of life. But me, I'm always, it's, it's, it's me. Which is actually, I mean, as you get older, you still feel that it's the same me. Body maybe is older, but you don't see your body normally. You don't see your face unless you're looking in the mirror all the time. So you still think that it's me, and that that me hasn't changed. I have a question regarding this. Like because most of us older people, you can't relate to your age, not at all. Good when you're younger, you can't. <laughs> and when you're younger, you can't also. Mm-hmm. And it helps because, you know, you're like, okay, it will change. It's not mm-hmm. going to be, like, shitty for forever. You know, it will, it will get... <laughs> but then if you... But then if I have that, um, that moment of realization when everything is fine, mm-hmm. it's like, what, it doesn't do anything for me. Like, it's interesting, the idea that everything is changing. But it has a different effect on me when I'm feeling negative versus when I'm feeling maybe more positive. Right. When we're feeling negative and we think that everything is going to change, then we think in terms of that it will get better, not that it will get worse. But uh, so it gives us (laughs) it gives us hope. Whereas if we uh, are things are going well and we think that things are going to change, that it's going to get worse again. Even when it's better, we think it's going to get even, even. So then, that's dissatisfaction, that's mm-hmm. greed, mm-hmm. which is a for, which is uh, an uncomfortable feeling. But what's like, I guess, the bigger question regarding because there's this like you're, you're trying to emphasize the idea of like understanding that, um, like things are uh, can change, right? Like this. Like things you, will change, not that they can change, right. they will change. But what's the benefit of knowing that? The benefit of knowing that is that uh, <laughs> when they change, you don't get upset. You go with the flow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not surprised. Yeah. What you know, our the, psyche doesn't. Pardon? What our psyche has this implies that things last or new. Why? You think, is it a kind of a protective mechanism in order to create some kind of continuity from one moment to another? Because if I, um, for example, think that tomorrow I may not wake up, I'll die, I can't function, right? So people have to believe in some kind of, our psyche has to believe in some kind of stability in the sense that, well, I'm fine tomorrow, I hope I'll fine wake up tomorrow, fine, and then I can do this and this. It's kind of a, a mechanism in order to make us... Well, when we think that uh, we will last forever or that uh, things will not change, that is an attempt to get security. In other words, we, uh, uh, how do we experience uh, ignorance? Do we experience it uh, or unknowing, unawareness? We experience it as insecurity. Mm -hmm. 
And then we try to make something secure, a static, heartless, you know, independent me. We try to make it secure, but it's impossible to make it secure. So we feel insecure. It's like having this safe ground of understanding and controlling things, because insecurity basically means, well, I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, we have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. We can. But we think we, sometimes we do, right? Yeah. We are convinced. We all know what's going to happen. When we come back home. We think we know uh, what's going to happen. When we go outside of this building in the street. We think we know. Well, that's we this idea know. of a self that is in control. Exactly. I'm in control, and I can control what's happening. Either that, or I'm just you know the victim, you know, of everything that's happening, and I have no control. Exactly. I'm out of control. Why, why are we so obsessed about it? Why? Because that, uh, if I can control things, that establishes that I'm real. So it's a way of... Uh, one of the ways, to one of the ways that we imagine a strategy to make us feel as though we actually are real and exist. But it's also like a societal thing. That's how we're Society is like that. I mean, there are many mechanisms like that. If I vocalize that I love you, that makes it real. If, uh, you know, you don't say it, it's not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, we educate ourselves, <laughs> like, since... since <laughs> you know, you recognize that one? <laughs> <laughs> or people that have to always touch something in order to establish that they're real. I understand very well about what you just said, that it's all about all different strategies of the ego to prove that I'm here. Right, to prove that I exist. Strategy is to try to establish my existence. Establish and prove are the same word. Okay, so, partless. Do we imagine that we're partless? And what suffering do we have if uh, we think that we have no parts? Parts can also mean facets, facets of our personality, different aspects of our life. Do you have parts in your life? Family life, business life, sport life. It's amazing. Hmm? I have a feeling that's also another strategy, because if you cut yourself from different places. Like sometimes I have periods of time when I don't go out, I don't, I'm very within myself. I, I feel okay, but I start to get that feeling that am I there at all? You know, because sometimes we have we use the strategies again to prove that we exist in the same fashion, mm-hmm. different facets. They exist because if somebody saw me in the street going there, I was there. If you don't have all these sides of life, it's like a question, am I, am I, am I there at all? You know? Well, I mean, this is uh, this whole uh, thing about relationships that we establish our existence in relation to others. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a face. This is the whole thing in, uh, um, in that article about analyzing uh, relationships. Mm-hmm. The so-called uh, establishment of the self in terms of relation with others. And what type of relation do we establish as being an object, being uh, equal, etc., etc. That uh, that is a way of, uh, that does establish the conventional existence. Depends on whether or not you imagine it in terms of 
conventionally uh, establishing your true existence. You know, if you have a true existence as a uh, member of a partner, partnership, a we, and then your partner dies, you no longer have, feel that you have any identity. Because you always think of yourself as a member of a, part, of, uh, a couple. But it is one way of establishing, conventionally you establish your existence. I mean, this was what uh, Vaibhashita says. If you function, it establishes, you know, it establishes the existence of something is that it functions and performs a function. But does it establish its you know, solid existence? That will be refuted later on. But for them, it does establish your existence. What suffering we get from... Uh, from thinking that we have no parts. That we're partless. That means also that one is not affected by other things. If one feels that one has no parts, some sort of, yeah, whatever, whatever happens around, it doesn't affect me too much. Yeah? That's static. That's not unaffected. Give an example of no parts. No parts would be like, I can only relate to one person, my partner, and I can't have any relationships with anybody else because that would be a different part of me. I couldn't have a friendship with anybody else. I can't verbalize it to you. Well, that's the same thing as you were before talking about being stuck. Well, you're stuck in this, of course. Pardon? If you, you would also have a terrible panic if you were losing something, like a lack, or I don't know, if you have a, a part of Well, that's right. Lose, or you have a part of your psychological setup that you lose. Right, and then system. objects, you know, that we grasp the objects as being a part of us. So, you know, if I lose my partner, if I lose my house, if I lose my job, well, that's actually part of me. So there's suffering, there's disturbing emotions. But actually, it's a good explanation also for trauma, because that what happens in trauma is you are stuck, you, you get cut off from a part of yourself that you will never look at again because it has been connected to the event that happened to you. Uh-huh. So that's also where you like, lose a part of yourself and that makes you have problems later. Right, like uh, you were in a, uh, uh, fought in the war, and it was so traumatic that uh, then you completely cut that part off. Well, cut, cut off, the part cut of off the that part of feeling in relation to that. Situation. Right. So you can never feel afraid anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. You only feel very panicky all the time. Right. Mm. So think, do I think, do I ever think that I am partless? Right. I mean, it's, it's human. We're human. I mean, right. No, but the thing is to recognize in ourselves and then compassion for ourselves, compassion for others who are stuck like that. They, th they can't think that they can. Well, yes, but we're doing the Buddhist meditation of, you know, compassion for others that don't realize that. 
and we think our mind is scared of losing it. That's a well, we grasp at uh, at partlessness, at not having parts, and then if we find that in fact there was a part that we lost, we freak out because then I'm not whole anymore. Well, this whole, I mean, part, you can talk about it in parts in terms of a whole. Well, in terms of uh, parts of the body, but you can also speak in terms of uh, parts of your life, facets of your life. Like I was using the example of having, you know, well, I'm a business person, I can't possibly go to sports, or I'm an intellectual person, I can't possibly go to sports. Or I uh, am just a business person. I can't possibly have a family. You know, the, the split between career and raising a family. It's, it's actual thinking that we have parts. Thinking that I can't have parts. That I don't have parts. That I'm only one thing. So limiting yourself to a certain... You limit yourself, right. Only one relationship. Can't have other friends. There's no room in my life for anybody else. But then you also have it in the sensitivity training that sometimes people also have to think that you have so many parts you can't bring them really together. You don't have a balanced feeling. Right. So you have to integrate the parts. You have to integrate the parts. If you have too many parts, if you're too fragmented, trying to do too many things, then you lose sight of the integration. Right. It's easier to function if you just limit yourself to, to uh, professional or to parent or to, uh, uh, you know, whatever. And then the last one, we don't have time, but I just to mention it, is uh, do you think of yourself as able to exist independently of a body and mind, inhabiting, operating, and possessing it? What kind of suffering would come from thinking that? The suffering that comes to my mind is a feeling of alienation, alienated from your body, alienated from your feelings. It's as if there is a me independently, existing independently of them, that's alienated. And the suffering that uh, would come from that What's the German word for alienated? Mm. I think a good example is many psychosomatic diseases where you, you feel you have a, 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 a symptom that you can't relate to. That's often the case with psychosomatic symptoms. So you don't see a, a cause really, but it comes from probably a psychological state or a, a trauma. Right, so, so, so that often induces a feeling of um, you have. You, you are out of control. You, you, have, you kind of possess the me or the body and control the functions. Right. When you have a disease, especially a sickness or a pain, and it's psychosomatic, even if it's not psychosomatic, it's not, you feel you that I can't knee. relate to this. I don't. It's not really me. Yeah, but if you bump your knee into something, then it's, you can control you know, how you treat that and all of that. But with psychosomatic things, sometimes even um, very kind of irrational. You know, it comes at 
rational moments. It, it doesn't abide by the rules. You know, you treat it and it doesn't go away. You know, it's, I think it's a very, um, I, uh, to my taste, it's a very, well, I feel that's, that's something out, outside my, you know, I'm not in control of my... Right. If we're not in control of it, then we feel that we're separate from what we're experiencing. Or even if it's something that has a, a cause, it's quite clear. I remember once I fell and cracked uh, some ribs. And uh, when I uh, fell, the feeling that I had, you know, that I, you know, there was the pain, I couldn't breathe for a while, uh, was I don't want to go on this trip, you know, of having now broken ribs and, uh, you know, all the hassle that is going to be associated with it. So there's a dissociation. And this dissociation uh, that we have that, you know, oh, you know, I don't want to have this cancer. I don't want to have this, you know, whatever it is that you can't relate to. So those are the sufferings that come from them. So this is the topic that uh, next week we will continue with the uh, meditations. Because I think approaching this with combining it with compassion is actually uh, very helpful. And remember, compassion in order to, compassion is based on renunciation. In order to have renunciation, you have to be convinced that you can get rid of it. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. Okay? So, let's end there with a dedication. We think whatever positive force, whatever understanding has come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to reach the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.